NPS Medicine Wise Podcasts, Conversations for a Medicine Wise Australia. Unfortunately, there's widespread beliefs in the community that imaging is the appropriate thing to do. So one of the jobs the GP faces is to try, try and readjust people's perceptions about how you manage health problems. Low back pain. If you haven't experienced it yourself, you probably know somebody who has. It is the leading cause of disability in the world and costs Australian society billions of dollars through treatment, time off work, imaging, medicines and surgery. My name is Josh Myers and on today's podcast we'll hear from GP Dr Jeannie Yu and Professor Chris Marr. Together they discuss all things back pain, from imaging to physiotherapy, what works, what doesn't. Here is Dr Jeannie Yu and Professor Chris Marr. We're joined here today by Professor Chris Marr. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Sydney at the School of Public Health, uh, director of the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health. His, Chris's clinical training uh, was in physiotherapy and his research focus is in the management of low back pain. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about low back pain and some of the challenges in assessing and managing these patients. So thank you for joining us, Chris. Thank you for the opportunity. So low back pain is very common. Um, we know that it affects a quarter to, uh, you know, one in seven Australians at any one time. And it's very commonly seen in general practice. It's, it's the most common musculoskeletal complaint um, that we GPs see. Uh, but just because it's common doesn't necessarily mean it's easing and it can be challenging to manage it well. Uh, so... We're here today to discuss some of the challenges in assessing and managing low back pain. So low back pain is typically benign and self-limiting, but that's not always the case. So Chris, could you um, talk us through the concept of nonspecific low back pain, um, what that actually means and how we can be confident that that's what we're dealing with when we see our patients? Okay. So, So in primary care, we use a triage process and screening patients and putting them into one of three broad broad categories. So there's a group of people who've got um, serious pathology, so things such as infection, cancer and fracture, a group in the middle who've got, um, I guess, their neurological syndrome, such as spinal canal stenosis, sciatica, and then the last group of people are people who've got non-specific low back pain. And in in general practice, about 90 to 95% of people have non-specific back pain. And that term is... um, an unfortunate term because all it actually means is that we can't specify the disease process or the anatomical structure that's causing the low back pain. So it's it's a frustrating label for clinicians and a frustrating label for patients because it really means we've excluded all the serious forms of back pain, the ones you need to worry about, but we can't say exactly what is wrong with your back. It sounds like, I mean, non-specific low back pain is really a diagnosis of exclusion uh, from the way that you describe it. Uh, and so the the key thing is, uh, or the first step, is that we can be confident um, that there isn't a serious underlying pathology uh, in terms of the patients that we're seeing. So what are the ways in which we can be confident um, about recognising those patients? So the, the most important thing is a good clinical assessment. So that's taking a focused history and a physical examination and also a, a neurological examination. And once you've done those, you can sort of put people into the category of, you know, we think these people don't have anything going on, so they're in non-specific low back pain. There's a group of people who've got ridiculous syndromes because their neurological testing is positive. And there's a group of people who, when you've taken the history, there are some alerting features or red flags. And together, when you're putting the whole picture together, you're suspicious that maybe there's something going on here. And, and those people who've got suspected serious pathology are the ones who need further diagnostic workup. So those are the people who are sent off for imaging, they're sent off for laboratory tests. And so... In primary care, the group of people with serious pathology is actually quite um, uncommon. It's a quite small group of people. In primary care, probably less than 1% of people who turn up to the GP or the physio have a serious form of low back pain, such as infection, fracture or cancer. So it's an uncommon diagnosis, but of course it's important to pick it up immediately and institute appropriate care. So red flags are something that we rely a lot on um, in clinical practice and, and particularly in general practice where... Um, much of what we see um, is of a benign nature, but certainly not all of what we see falls into that category. Um, so what are the most useful red flags 
for identifying those patients who have that serious underlying spinal pathology? Yeah, I, th- I think what you're looking for are symptoms and signs of infection, um, a history of malignancy, um, unexplained weight loss, significant trauma in a younger person or mild trauma in an older person, someone who's been taking um, corticosteroids. You need to look for features of corticoquina syndrome, so that's bladder and bowel disturbance, um, saddle anesthesia. Um, a severe and progressive neurological deficit is also something you need to worry about. This, so there's those red flags are useful, and together with the history and physical examination, the doctors need to form a global judgment and think, you know, this person, it doesn't seem like simple mechanical low back pain. I need to do some more workup for these people. The thing to bear in mind is that one red flag on its own is not diagnostic. And the other thing to bear in mind is there are some red flags in textbooks which are useless. And so, for example, people have suggested that the, there is a, use, a red flag um, thoracic spine pain, but that has a likelihood ratio of one. So it doesn't help whether it's present or absent. And also some um, guidelines suggest age greater than 50 as a red flag. But of course, there's a lot of people who are over 50 who have back pain and have no serious pathology. So the the false positives with some of those red flags are enormous. And so you should avoid some of those red flags and just use the smaller set of ones which are more useful. Mm -hmm. Um, So if there were um, some key red flags uh, that, uh, you know, we should remember, which are the most useful red flags that you would emphasise? Well, the most useful red flag is a previous history of cancer. So if you're trying to to work out which people have got cancer, that's a useful thing to do. Um, You need to look for people who have, you know, symptoms and signs or or, um, a history that suggests that maybe they're going to have an infection there. So an intravenous drug user, fever, malaise, those sorts of things. It's, It's those sorts of red flags, the unusual things that are useful. Things such as night pain, which have been reported previously, unfortunately about half the people who have back pain report night pain. So on its own, it's not a particularly useful um, red flag, whereas the red flags for corticoquina syndrome, such as bladder and bowel disturbance, um, saddle anesthesia, you get a much better yield following those sorts of red flags. And so the, the prevailing view is that there was a whole long laundry list of red flags, and unfortunately some of those are not particularly useful. It's just a smaller list of red flags that are what the GP should be um, chasing down when they take a history with a patient. It's uh, helpful to uh, have some indicators uh, so that we can be more confident um, about patients who might fit into that, that category of having that serious underlying pathology, recognising, of course, that we will need to do more testing um, than actual people that have that pathology in order to, to capture that group. Yeah, and, and the, other, the other point to bear in mind is that um, it's an uncommon condition, these ones, so the prevalence is about less than 1%. And the other thing is that even if you do a fantastic job, occasionally you're going to miss some of these things. And so that's why um, following up your patients and so scheduling a review at one to two weeks is really important because you know then you get the chance to pick up what might have been not so obvious at the first presentation. So a lot of people in that two-week period would improve, so the, the usual stat is about half the people improve over two weeks. If someone returns... Their back pain's not improving. You could then re-screen them for red flags and then sometimes just sort of catch up things at that point in time. Yes, time is, time is um, often our ally in terms of um, dealing with diagnostic uncertainty, isn't it? Okay, and so that's the group that less than 1% with the serious underlying pathology. Uh, if we turn now to the group um, that have a ridiculous syndrome or or features that suggest there's lumbosacral nerve root involvement. Do all of those patients need to have imaging? None of those people need to have imaging if you're seeing them in primary care. And so the initial primary care management of the radicular syndromes and the initial management of non-specific low back pain is exactly the same. If people don't respond to the first line of care and the person's being reviewed by surgeon and thinking about um, a surgical option that's the point where imaging may be required so there are a a couple of forms of um, surgery which are useful for spinal canal stenosis and for people who've got lumbar radiculopathy associated with disc prolapse but the initial care is that you should try and treat them conservatively if these people don't respond get a surgical opinion and at that point imaging is required but not when you're back at the gp right so even for someone that presents with radicular pain or with neurological features, findings um, suggesting a radiculopathy, those patients initially actually don't require imaging? No, because the diagnosis is made clinically. So if you do a full neurological assessment, 
you know, from having the reflexes down, the sensory loss, the power loss, the, the characteristic dermatomal presentation of the pain, you can say with you know, some certainty that this person's got a radiculopathy, you can say which, which, which level it is. And the first treatments are much the same as you'd give for people with non-specific low back pain. The differences would be people who don't respond and you're thinking about a surgical option. And another group of people are, are people who've got deteriorating neurological status. So when you get them back for review, their neurological function is deteriorating. You know, they may require imaging. And then the other group, which sort of sometimes merges with radicular syndromes, are the people who've got quadriquinus syndrome. So once you start to see features of bladder and bowel dysfunction, saddle anesthesia, you know, those are the people who need the further diagnostic workup. And so I guess the, the key point is that for the radicular syndromes, the initial management and primary care, most of these people don't need to be sent off for imaging. So far, really, we've, we've only got a very small group that less than 1% who do have that serious underlying pathology where you would think about imaging in the first instance. Yeah, and I guess that the point is the prevalence is 1%, but some things are a little bit confusing when they present to the GP. So it's going to be a little bit bigger than 1% who you send off for further workup. But it shouldn't really be the majority of people being sent off for imaging. So, you know, if, if a GP is sending 5% of their patients off for imaging because they're being a little bit cautious to try and pick up the 1%, you know, that's fine. What we're, we're trying to avoid is the approach where a GP or, or someone else is sending off most of their patients for imaging if they're suspecting non-specific low back pain. Yes, and recent data, for example, from the BEACH study uh, in 2015 to 16 suggests that somewhere between 13 and 17% of encounters with patients with back complaints um, resulted in an imaging test. So the average rate of imaging is much higher than, than you'd expect from the prevalence of conditions which require imaging to be ordered in the first instance. That's, that's right. And, and so we're not critical of GPs. You know, the, a similar trend happens in the emergency department. And so the the, the rates are probably a little bit higher even in emergency departments where they're sending off people who've got non-specific low back pain for imaging. I think the rates are about 25 to 30% there. And so there are opportunities to improve the, the management of low back pain by pulling back on some of the imaging requests. And so if you've got a patient who you think falls into the category of non-specific low back pain, is there any clinical situation where imaging is actually helpful? No, there's not. I mean, they've done clinical trials where they've got groups of people with low back pain, randomised patients to be imaged or not imaged, and, and in the long term, there's no difference in outcomes. And, and that makes sense because the imaging results aren't going to inform the treatments you'd give people with non-specific low back pain. There's also the potential for downside with imaging. You know, there's obviously the radiation exposure, but there's also some indirect evidence from observational studies that patients who get imaged are more likely to be prescribed opioids, they're more likely to be suggested for surgical procedures. And so, you know, there's sort of iatrogenic harms associated with ordering imaging. The other side is that sometimes the labels that are used in the imaging reports can be quite scary to the patient. So patients open up the envelope, they read the messages there, and some of the words that are used by the radiologist and, and are in read by the GP makes sense to those people but for patients you know they're quite scary and, and quite disabling and so that's another reason why you don't want to unnecessarily send someone off to imaging they read these reports and they get disabled by the terms we use to describe often incidental findings which don't actually explain the back pain. Right so um, I mean sometimes uh, you know there's a, um, a pressure within a clinical situation to order imaging for a patient for reassurance, you know, to check that everything is okay and that there's not something serious going on. But from what you're saying, it can actually have the opposite and a counterproductive effect. Yes. I mean, I've heard that argument that sending people off for imaging is reassuring, but I'm not sure it is. And so there are examples where people are more alarmed by the results of the imaging. And we do have evidence that when doctors actually can find the time in their consultation to sit down and talk to the patients, Patients actually find the words and the conversation with the GP quite reassuring. And so if I was sort of weighing up what's the best strategy if someone is anxious about their back pain, I'd encourage the GP to see if they could spend some time talking to the patient rather than writing out the script to send them off for um, an X-ray or an MRI. Sometimes when that happens, um, the, you know, the, the GP uh, is responding to what they perceive to be the patient's expectations and desire to have um, imaging 
um, perform. But uh, are you suggesting that there's actually um, uh, evidence or studies to suggest that actually that's not what patients really are looking for? No, maybe I didn't say that the right way. Um, unfortunately, there's widespread beliefs in the community that imaging is the appropriate thing to do. So GPs will encounter patients who in good faith are saying to them, you know, I want an, an X-ray of my back because they think that's an appropriate thing to do. Um, it's the same with patients turning up who've got the common cold who want an antibiotic script because they think that's what you need if you've got the cold. And so one of the jobs the GP faces is to try, try and readjust people's perceptions about how you manage health problems. And so in the same way that they would explain to someone that they don't need antibiotics, they also need to explain to the patient why imaging is not required for um, most presentations of low back pain. What would be the easiest way for a GP to start to shift those kinds of, of, of perceptions and expectations of patients? How, how can they explain non-specific low back pain and the, the fact that imaging doesn't make a difference in a way that patients can readily understand and accept? I think that the, the main way is to, is to you know, do a full assessment and then take the time to explain you know, based on this full assessment, you know, there's, there's very little um, risk that you've got a serious disease as the cause of the back pain. So this is really good news. And the only people we send off for imaging are people who we suspect have got a terrible disease, the people who we think have got an infection in their back, the people who've got cancer in their back. And so, you know, if I'm sending my patients off for imaging, I'm worried for them. And usually if I get a result back which will change management, it's, you know, and sometimes it's devastating for the patient. And so we've got the wrong view about the, the, the role of imaging for back pain. You know, the role of imaging for back pain is to identify the small group of people who've got a serious disease, and then it helps the management. And, and these people often have a condition which is um, sometimes it's life-changing, but, but usually it's quite serious. And so we want to explain to patients, you know, it's completely different from the prevailing view in society. You know, the things that we see on imaging for people with non-specific low back pain are pointless. Um, we see changes on x-rays, but they're the equivalent of grey hairs. And, and, you know, we see things like minor disc bulges, but they're not going to change the treatment that you'd have. And in, in your research or in your experience, do you find that if that approach is taken with patients, that, that that's something that they can understand and accept? Or, or do they find this idea that imaging is only for excluding certain conditions a difficult one to, to take on board? It's a difficult one. And so that's why, you know, I think in some ways we need some public health messages out there to help the GP. You know, I realise that I'm giving the GPs a hard task, but it's, you know, it's a job that's got to be done. And we need to be supported, I guess, by the government in the same way that we send out public health messages about, you know, slip, slop, slap, you know, putting on sunscreen, the same way as we have public health messages about engaging in physical activity. We probably need to spend a little bit of time dealing with the misconceptions in the community about low back pain because otherwise it's just left to the GP and the physio to try and change these things and on their own it's a really tough job. So um, what, what, is, what do you feel is the uh, general understanding of low back pain within the community and, and how is that different to what would be the contemporary understanding of the nature of pain generally including low back pain? Okay so there's there's a lot of myths about low back pain. So the, the myth we've talked about, first of all, is that um, management requires imaging and imaging will show some problem that the doctor can then fix. There's also myths about bed rest. So people seem to think that you should rest when you've got back pain, whereas it's actually the opposite. And I also think there's myths about the approach to treatment. So people expect to, to use pain medicines as the, um, the treatment for low back pain, whereas contemporary guidelines have sort of switched things around and so non-pharmacological treatments are usually the first um, treatment choice if you've got an episode of low back pain. And, and that perhaps is counterintuitive um, to many people uh, in the community. I imagine the natural association with being in acute pain is to take something that relieves acute pain. Exactly. So, so we have this view that, you know, if you've got pain you would take paracetamol and that would sort of respond and back pain's a funny sort of condition because you know when we've gone gone back and done the clinical trials to test if paracetamol works for low back pain it doesn't actually work um, so it's no more effective than a placebo and some of the other medicines that we've got available to us have an effect on low back pain but they've also got significant downsides and so mainly because of the downsides around use of medicines with the prevailing view is to sort of switch things around and use non 
non-pharmacological care. And I, and I guess the agent that most people are concerned about would be the use of opioid analgesics for low back pain. They became quite popular um, because of the way that they were marketed. And what we've learned is that they probably don't provide superior pain relief to simpler pain options, uh, simpler analgesics, but they certainly have a much greater harm profile. And so there's lots of statistics about people who've had quite serious adverse events associated with taking opioid analgesics, and there's a really high rates of dependence. And so GPs are now quite reluctant to use these medicines or should be reluctant. They should be reserved for you know the right sort of people and not given to most people with low back pain. So in practice, uh, when we think about uh, if we put paracetamol aside because um, it's, it's no more effective than placebo um, and we're thinking about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories um, and opioids, uh, has the evidence shown that there's actually not a superior pain-relieving um, benefit from opioids? Yes, there's been a few studies. So there's the SPACE trial that was done recently which compared opioid strategies to non-opioid strategies and Contrary to what we would have thought at the beginning of that sort of study, they found that non-opioid strategies provided equivalent pain relief. And there's also a series of studies which have been done in the United States in the ED setting with people with acute low back pain. And they've sort of tested whether if you add an opioid to a simple analgesic, in this case it was an NSAID, whether you got superior pain relief, and the answer was you don't. And so we've now understood that Opioids, although they were sold as you know very powerful analgesics, the, the effect sizes aren't powerful at all, and and they were also sold as you know if you take them appropriately, you know harms are minimal. But we now know that that's not the case either, and so I guess the position about the the, the overall value of opioids in the management of musculoskeletal conditions has been reconsidered quite considerably. Mm. Well, I think that's you know that that would be. Uh, news to many GPs, uh, I think we're used to thinking of opioids as being powerful analgesics, but ones with very significant um, sort of side effects and, and downsides. So something that we reserve only in situations of patients with very severe acute pain. Yeah, well, see, if you look at the effect sizes for, well, if we go back and say, you know, do we have any evidence that opioids work for acute low back pain? The answer is no, there are no clinical trials. If you look at chronic low back pain, long-term back pain, the effect sizes are about the same as you get with an NSAID and they're about the same size as you get uh, with a physiotherapy exercise program, sending people off to yoga, sending people off to Feldenkrais. So the idea that opioids are a powerful analgesic is, is a myth. You know, They are not a powerful analgesic. They are a drug that could have a powerful effect on someone's health, but usually in terms of adverse effects. Um, I know GPs have got reluctance to use it and they've got some caution but I think sometimes people don't appreciate the the size of the risk so for example in the ED setting you know about five to ten percent of people who are prescribed an opioid are still on the opioid one year later and so that rate of dependence or long-term use of opioids is probably not widely appreciated. Mm, not at all uh, and um, perhaps you know, it'd be interesting to know uh, how that compares with the longer-term effects of opioid prescribing within general practice. Yeah, so I think th this is an area where there's emerging evidence. And so the more we seem to understand about opioids, I guess people are more reluctant to use them. So, you know, going back 10 years, you know, people were using them, but with care. I think now people are saying these are really a last resort and they need to be used in closely controlled situations with regular review by, you know, by a GP to make sure that they're done safely. And the, the proportion of people who would fit that profile is a very small percentage. So you mentioned uh, uh, before, Chris, that activity in itself can be beneficial for, for relieving pain. Um, could, That's right. Could you sort of explain to us a little more about why activity is the mainstay of our treatment approach or should be the mainstay of our treatment approach to low back pain? Okay, I guess I distinguish between two forms of activity. So one form of activity that the GP can encourage is just to actually give people advice about returning to normal activity. And so there's this concept of pacing up people's activities. And so to give the, the, the GP some guidance for that, you would talk to the person about what they can currently manage that doesn't stir up their pain too much, and then you would drop it back to maybe 80% of that level and then work with the patient about how you're going to gradually increase that activity level over time. So, so they talk about pacing up activities. 
but that's physical activity that the patient's doing as part of their normal lifestyle, guided by a GP or guided by a physiotherapist and sometimes by a clinical psychologist. So that's physical activity. There's also um, supervised exercise programs. And so that would be where the GP would send the patient off to either a physiotherapist or an exercise physiologist. And they would do an exercise program in some ways similar to what you would do if you turned up to the gym. And so that would include strengthening, stretching, um, skill or agility exercises, aerobic training. Um, and that's meant to, I guess, increase the physical capacity of the body. So in the, the first approach, just prescribing physical activity, is just showing patients that it's actually safe to move and that the more they do, it doesn't actually exacerbate their symptoms. So in many ways, you could say that it's a psychological treatment. You're sort of exposing the, the, the patient to the feared stimulus. In this case, they're fearing activity. They think it's going to make their condition worse. If it's done in a safe, structured fashion, it doesn't do that. Often what you find is it actually makes the pain less. And the other alternative, the structured exercise program, is based around the idea that for people with chronic low back pain, they often have a deconditioned musculoskeletal system and that you need to restore those functions. So you need to um, increase strength, flexibility, endurance, coordination, not just of the trunk and the spine, but of the whole body. If you've got someone who's had back pain for many months, it's the whole of their body that gets deconditioned and you need to think about, I guess, whole body exercise as part of a, a, a structured exercise program. Mm. So activity really um, sounds like uh, it's the, it's the, it should be the main emphasis when we're thinking about low back pain, whether it's acute low back pain or um, chronic low back pain that's, that's been going on for more than three months. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and the thing that I'd point out is that the GP is well-placed to, to guide the patient to resuming the normal activities. And so rather than the GP writing a script for a medicine, they can think about writing a script for graded activity, you know, where they pace up the person's activities over time. You can help them plan what the goal they need to get towards and, and sort of help them work out what are the steps along the way to get to that point in time. So it's actually quite an interesting process. You know, it's the idea of writing a script for phys physical activity which is an alternative to writing a script for imaging or writing a script for a, a pain medicine. And so how can we explain to patients why activity is going to be so beneficial uh, for their pain? Again, you know, for, for many people that, that seems counterintuitive. If you have acute low back pain, shouldn't you rest? That's interesting because if you, if you talk to people who've had a sports injury, most people understand that following a sports injury, there's a period of time where you don't use it too much, but then you gradually resume activity. And, and people understand that, you know, if you've got a sprained ankle, the healing process is, is facilitated by movement and the muscles become stronger, the ligaments become stronger with you doing some, some physical activity. For some reason, people have got the idea that the back is not like that, we just need to rest it. But in fact, the back is exactly like that. You should think about managing back pain the same way you manage a sports injury. Um, Initially, you won't, you won't be returning to full activity, but over time, you gradually resume activity, and that's a better way to encourage recovery from that condition. There's evidence from, I guess, basic studies with animals. When you look at disrupted um, tissue, where they provide, um, these are horrible studies, but they've done things to rabbits and pigs and all sorts of things where they artificially create an injury. When they look at recovery from the injury, the, the animals that are exposed to physical activity and stress actually heal quicker and the integrity of the anatomical structures, the musculoskeletal um, components of the, the back and the, the knee and things like that, the integrity is much stronger in the group that are exposed to physical activity. And based upon that basic science studying animals, we presume the same thing applies to humans. Of course, we can't do those analogous experiments in humans. We'd be, we'd be locked up in jail. But we think based upon animal studies and, and what we know about the, the adaptability of the musculoskeletal system, that physical activity is a really important thing to do when you've got a, a pain condition such as low back pain. It's also a really important thing to do if you've got osteoarthritis of the knee or hip. And so we've, there's this changing view where we used to rest osteoarthritis, we used to rest back pain. We now use physical activity wisely to help people recover and return to normal activity. So perhaps it's about the right kind of uh, physical activity uh, in sort of in the in in the right kind of way to to gradually um, build yourself back up again. Exactly, and so 
if someone's had an, an episode of acute low back pain and they're acutely disabled, I'm not saying that that person needs to return and, and, and if they're a bricklayer and lay bricks again the next day. There's, there's going to be this process where you guide them through gradually returning to their, their full sports activities, their full work activities, and, you know, their full home duties. And the usual statistic is for acute low back pain, about 50% of people are pain-free after two weeks. And so that gives the GP a bit of a guide as to how quickly to progress people. And so we're really talking about a period of between two to six weeks where they might resume their full activity, some people a little bit quicker than others. But really, um, you need to get people to gradually increase what they're doing and use that gradual um, graded activity approach. And that's going to help people return to their normal job, their normal lifestyle a lot quicker. There's a couple of things that you can pay attention to that might tell you if you've done too much too quickly. So if you talk to the patient and when they've done physical activity, it's exacerbated their pain, maybe you need to pull back a little bit. What we're talking about is doing physical activity, which might cause some discomfort at the time, but when you stop, it settles back down again. So using the symptom response to sort of guide you as to how, how quickly you load the tissues, how quickly you get people to expose themselves to physical activity. And so if a patient perhaps has overdone it and, and has had some problems with exacerbation of their pain that's been ongoing even after they stop their activity, then we would be advising them just to reduce the level of activity um, and then build up a little bit more gradually. Yeah, so not go back to bed, but have a think about what they did that exacerbated their symptoms. You know, that's probably a sign you were trying too much to just drop it back by 10 or 20% and see how you go with that. And so um, we'd like to have everybody recover so it's sort of a straight line or heading towards, you know, improvement. Unfortunately, there's sort of an ups and downs and swings and roundabouts, and so it muddies it a little bit. But generally, you know, by the patient's response to the activity they do, that helps us understand whether it was too much or too little, and we can guide them to, to increase their activities over time. Um, the more the GP gets experience doing this, I think the more confident they will be about prescribing physical activity. The first time it's going to be a little bit um, uncomfortable, but over time, I think they'll get quite good at it. So patients often ask whether one form of activity is better than another, um, perhaps particularly when you're thinking about choices around different forms of exercise. Are there particular forms of exercise that are better for those with problems with low back pain? Yeah, the, the, the best form of exercise is the one that you enjoy and you stick with. And that sounds a trite answer, but really there's so many options for physical activity and exercise. And when we've, when we've tested them head-to-head -head in trials, they don't, one doesn't seem superior to another. And so amongst physiotherapists, there's all these sorts of debates about whether people should be doing a motor control exercise program, graded activity, yoga, Feldenkrais, Tai Chi, Pilates, now, they're all different brands of exercise and, and they have a lot of things in common. When each of these programs is delivered well by a competent practitioner, is increased over time, they get the dose right, you get equivalent results. And so really it's talking to the patient about what they would like to do and then setting up that particular exercise program. So I'm, I'm not an advocate for one particular brand or religion of exercise. That just wastes too much time. You've got to find something that the person could incorporate into their lifestyle. So, for example, if someone's got chronic low back pain, walking may be what's useful for them because they've got a partner who walks, they like to walk their dog, you know, walking's great for them. Other people might like swimming, other people might like going to the gym and having yoga sessions. It's really working out what the person would enjoy and could fit into their lifestyle. Mm. So conversely, there's no particular forms of activity that you would advise against for these kinds of patients? There are people who've got precautions and contraindications to physical activity. So they might have you know, heart problems or respiratory problems or diabetes. So, but they're usually not an absolute contraindication. So sometimes there are precautions. Um, the only things that I would advise is that you need to be careful about going to an exercise practitioner who's not used to prescribing exercise for people with um, pain. So going to a physiotherapist, a credentialed exercise physiologist, they're both very safe options. I'd be a little bit reluctant just to, to send them off to anybody. So if you go up to the, the local gym, some of the fitness instructors there have done sort of weekend courses. And so some of those people, unfortunately, haven't received sufficient training to know what to do with people with um, 
musculoskeletal conditions, you're probably better off to, to seek out um, a, a credentialed therapist such as an exercise physiologist or a physiotherapist who are more likely to safely prescribe an exercise program. Okay, well, look, I think that provides some really helpful guidance uh, for us as GPs and uh, means that, uh, we, you know, we can be more confident about how we can prescribe activity for our patients and explain it in a way that makes sense to them. Yeah, I think that um, these are challenging times in some ways for GPs because we're saying um, don't image, don't prescribe medicines. And so some of them will be sitting back thinking, what am I going to do? Well, I guess what you're going to do is some different things. You're going to be going back to good old-fashioned GP care where you actually spend the time and talk to your patient, explain what's wrong with them. And then you'll be learning a new skill, which is about um, writing a script for physical activity and you'll also be engaging a lot more with the exercise physiologist and the physiotherapist to help set up um, an exercise program for people with chronic low back pain. And you're also going to be spending some time, you know, organising referrals to a clinical psychologist or a pain clinic for the people who need those sorts of services. So there's still an important role for GPs in the management of low back pain. It's just a bit different from what it was two decades ago. So you've mentioned just there that, of course, there are some patients uh, whose low back pain isn't self-limiting um, and who develop persistent and disabling symptoms are you know, estimated to be around about 10 to 40% of acute low back pain um, sufferers. So how do we identify those patients who are at greater risk of developing chronic pain and um, does it change what we, um, what we do or the kind of management um, for those patients? Mm. Yeah, so there are some risk prediction tools, which are brief screening items, which you can administer to the patient on day one. And, and it gives you some idea about whether they're likely to recover pretty quickly or whether they're going to recover more slowly. And so there's the um, Arebro short form questionnaire, which has got 10 items. There's a start back tool, which has got even smaller number of items. And both of those are really easy to score. And they're looking for things associated with, I guess, catastrophizing, high levels of pain. Um, I guess these are psychosocial factors. We, we would use the term yellow flags. And, and the presence of those yellow flags is usually associated with poor um, prognosis. And so once you've done that screening process, you've got a group of people who've got a good prognosis and they can be managed by the GP with a very simple approach. If people have got a high risk of delayed recovery, so they've screened positive on the Rebro or they've screened positive on the start back. They're the sorts of people who would benefit from referral to the physiotherapist or the psychologist to get them started on some sort of program to get them going on the way to recovery. And so what we're saying for acute low back pain is that you can use those tools to try and work out who's going to be recovering pretty quickly. You know, they've got this simple, prog uh, simple back pain, recovers really quickly, probably going to recover in two weeks versus ones which will take a bit longer. In the past, people would say, well, just treat them all the same. And if they don't recover, then at six, six weeks to three months, then intervene. The new thought is to sort of bring that forward so that you intervene early to try and prevent chronicity. And that makes sense to me that rather than waiting for there to be a failure of treatment, you bring forward that decision point to maybe one to two weeks after the, the back pain's been there and start thinking, well, at this point, should I intervene in some of the patients and give them a little bit more care to try and prevent them becoming chronic? So um, in terms of management, uh, physio referral to a physiotherapist uh, might have a role. And you also um, mentioned psychological treatments, a potential referral to a clinical psychologist. Uh, if we're thinking that a, a patient has features suggesting that would be an important part of their management, how do we explain that to patients? Uh, I mean, will they think that, um, you know, a common view would be that, are you suggesting this pain is all in my head, um, you know, that it's not real? I mean, that might be something that's a little bit challenging to, to broach as a GP. Yeah, I think it depends upon, you know, the, the degree of this. So there's some people are a little bit, you know, we can talk about people who are a little bit apprehensive or fearful of movement. I think that concept is probably easy to broach with um, patients. You know, you can say to them, look, I understand your back is really quite sore and you seem quite scared about movement. For you, it might be important to go and see a physiotherapist. It's going to show you some safe ways to move and get you going again. So the idea of, you know, um, I guess fear avoidance is, is a concept that's probably easy to broach with a patient. If the GP has identified, you know, depressed mood, 
I think GPs are quite skilled at bringing that concept up with a patient and pointing out that you know, because of these issues, just um, ignoring the depressed mood and just treating the pain is not going to work particularly well. So we need to think about working, um, dealing with both the problems. And there's also a group of people who've got long-term back pain who've got a whole range of problems. And so these are people who are on a lot of medicines. They might be using alcohol to a greater degree than is healthy to try and numb their pain. They may have relationship problems. They may have problems at the workplace. And I think you could explain to the patient that there's a number of reasons here why you're finding it difficult to recover from your back pain. And what we're going to need to do is to work with a group of people who are going to help you solve each of those issues. And so we need to talk to someone to help you um, come off some of those pain medicines. We need to talk to someone about getting you fit again so we can get you back to work. So I think you probably could divide up the particular issues um, to explain why they need to go to a pain clinic in some situations, in some situations why they go to a physiotherapist. But as you say, making clear that you believe that their pain is real, they're not imagining it. But for anybody who's had long-term pain, it's, it's impossible not to be affected by it. Like if, you, if I had pain that lasted for three months, I would start to feel down. I would also start to feel that life is bleak. And these are natural responses to having pain long-term. And so this is not all in Chris Ma's head. These are natural responses of humans to having severe back pain that lasts for a long period of time. And although they're natural, they're counterproductive. And you can work with a physiotherapist or a psychologist to turn that around and get you on the road to recovery. And so this is not something different about people. They're not lesser people because they've got these ways of thinking about their pain. These are normal human reactions. So we can really sort of help to normalise the kinds of ways in which um, pa our patients are being affected by their pain um, and, and perhaps try to broaden um, the patient's own understanding of pain from being something which is a just a, a narrow pain-based biomechanical perspective to something a little bit more comprehensive. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's that old-fashioned view that you know, you've got some stimulus and it causes pain and it goes up the nerve and goes into your brain and you feel pain. Like, we now understand that the context and the environment around the person greatly affects their experience of pain. And so that's what the biopsychosocial model is, is meant to explain to people, that when you're experiencing an episode of back pain, what's happening at the workplace, what's happening at home, what you're thinking about, all of those things influence the severity, the expression of your back pain. And so there can be examples where you've got a really hard life at home, a really hard life at work, and that's going to make the back pain much worse. And so people need to understand that you know, these are normal experiences. We all live in a world. On some days, our world is so bad that we feel terrible with our back pain. On other days, it's quite good because everything else is working well in our lives. Often when people come and see the physiotherapist or the doctor for their back pain, yes, their back pain is worse, but it's often because these other things in the life are also worse at that point in time. Right. So um, really we need to be holistic, I think, uh, in the way that we understand the, 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 the full picture for that patient um, and then be able to bring together a team of people for, for people with more complex back pain and explain why that's important to the patient. Yeah, exactly. And that's why the GPs are a really important point in this management of low back pain, because, you know, this is really bread and butter stuff for GPs. I think they do understand, you know, holistic healthcare because they're the, they're the person who sees the patient for a whole range of health problems. And so they do understand these issues. Um, in some ways, they probably understand these issues better than physiotherapists, which is my clinical background. So they're in a really um, fortunate position to manage low back pain in a holistic way, using his biopsychosocial model because that's sort of the framework of general practice. You know, you're dealing with a whole range of health problems for your one patient. You mentioned uh, referring, potentially referring patients to see a clinical psychologist as, as part of that, that management approach. Uh, is that psychologists that are particularly specialised uh, in this area or in, in helping patients with musculoskeletal pain? Yes, there are. So, I mean, if you're looking for, you, you need to find someone who's used to, to managing pain. So clinical psychologists deal with a whole range of issues and really it's finding, um, the GP needs to find a clinical psychologist in, in their neighbourhood who deals with pain and has experience with it. So it's, you know, clinical psychologists deal with things such as anxiety, stuttering, a whole range of things, nervousness, loneliness, 
and there's a group of them who manage pain and the ones that are skilled in managing pain will do a really good job for the patient. There's good evidence that the treatments that a clinical psychologist provides are effective for low back pain. And so the GP should be confident that if they get the patient to a good clinical psychologist and the clinical psychologist treats them with evidence-based treatments, this is going to help the patient. We've got good evidence to suggest that's likely to be the case. Okay. Well, look, I think that the our, our model for uh, assessing and managing pain has certainly come a long way uh, from the traditional um, the traditional model, and it's really good to understand that current recommendations around uh, managing low back pain aren't all about taking things away from GPs, um, but rather replacing them with more effective approaches. Um, so not about imaging uh, when we're talking about non-specific low back pain, but about assessment and reassurance um, and not a focus on medicines, um, but a focus on activity. Um, and then this um, sort of newer aspect, which is really about early identification of patients who will be at high risk of developing chronic low back pain. Yeah, that's right. So I think you framed it really well that this is a changing time for GPs. And so I think they've got, you know, an equally important role in the management of low back pain as they had previously. They're just doing things in a, in a different way. And it's in a different way which we think will do um, will achieve much better results for the patient. So just to sum up, um, it, it's always um, a partnership between the GP or the physiotherapist and the patient. So we need to be able to communicate uh, that change effectively with our patients as well. Uh, what do you think are the key things that we need to be able to explain with our patients um, as a framework um, for our recommendations? Yeah, I think the, the key thing to point out to patients is if you've screened them and they're negative, I think it's really important to reassure them and explain to them that there's a good prognosis. And for those people, that's why it's just being, you're just being managed by the GP the GP will review you in one to two weeks and you'd expect that you'd be markedly improved. And then for the other groups of people, you just need to explain why they need to see the, the physiotherapist for a program of care. Um, you probably do need to explain that most physiotherapists now would give an exercise program and also some psychological treatments. And so that's one good thing about seeing the physio. The contemporary training of physios include physical exercises, but also some psychological treatments. And so going off to a physiotherapist for some exercise and some psychological therapies is sometimes a little bit more palatable and acceptable than going off to the clinical psychologist. Um, I guess just trying to explain why these things are happening and when the GP is going to review progress. Um, I guess the other thing that I'd like to give advice about is, you know, sometimes GPs send patients off to the physio and they don't get the care that you'd expect. And so, my tips would be that if you're sending a patient off to a physiotherapist and they're applying lots of machines to them, um, that's not a good way to treat low back pain. So anything, anyone comes back and says that they've been treated predominantly with machines plugged into a PowerPoint on the wall, that's bad care, that should ring alarm bells. You should avoid referring patients to that physiotherapist because their old-fashioned physiotherapy treatments we used to do probably 20 or 30 years ago, and if people are still doing them, they're not helping the patients. The physiotherapist should be talking to the patient, giving them active exercises, getting them involved in their program. And the physiotherapist should either be ringing the GP or sending a written report back to the GP explaining the progress of care. And so you need to have that communication between the physio and the GP. And if that's happening, that's a, that's a sign that there's good quality care happening. And um, that's what you want to encourage. And so the GP needs to, to search out in their district the physios that are working in a contemporary approach that will engage with them and not refer patients to the old-fashioned physios doing things which are no longer known to work. Look, it's very helpful to have, have that perspective and, and to understand how to recognise um, high-quality physiotherapy care. Could you explain a little bit more about some of the psychological therapies that contemporary physiotherapists use when working with their patients? Yeah, so... <clears throat> Some of the forms of um, exercise that physiotherapists would do include psychological principles. So one of the principles they use is pacing. So that's the idea that you use graded exposure to the feared stimulus, in this case, movement. And so it's a bit like graded exposure to spiders if you're spider phobic. You know? So physiotherapists are now thinking about 
how do we gradually expose this person who's very fearful of movement to movement in a safe way? Um, physiotherapists would also talk to patients about some of their thoughts and feelings about movement or some of their thoughts about recovery. And so they can deal with issues such as catastrophizing, excessive fear. Um, so it's not saying they're a clinical psychologist. What they're doing is a modern form of physiotherapy using some principles that they've borrowed from their colleagues in psychology to make their physiotherapy treatments work a bit more effectively. And, and I've, you could also say that when the physiotherapist sits down and talks with their patient, the same as a GP talking to their patient, you know, that's also a psychological treatment. It's providing education. It's providing reassurance um, in the same way that a psychologist would. And so I guess it's psychology light. That's a sort of a funny term. But, you know, physiotherapists will not just do physical treatments. They do some other stuff which has um, – it resembles psychology. Of course, when things get to a really extreme level and someone has a very complex presentation, that's when they need to be seen by, you know, a fully qualified clinical psychologist – you know, often in collaboration with the physiotherapist and the GP. But there's sort of a middle ground where people can get physiotherapy informed by psychological principles, and that seems to do quite well for the patients. And so that would be a standard expectation uh, now uh, with um, uh, sort of contemporary physiotherapy practice? Yeah, so I think I... I've worked at the University of Sydney for about 30 years. So we started getting clinical psychologists to come and talk to physios probably 15 years ago. And so we get Professor Michael Nicholas, who's probably one of the world's leading pain psychologists, to come and talk to the physiotherapist about how they would deal with patients borrowing some principles from clinical psychology to do a better job. And so that's now part of the curriculum, certainly at University of Sydney that started maybe 15 years ago, but around the world, you know, there's all the training programs for physiotherapists have borrowed some of the elements from psychology, getting our colleagues in clinical psychology to come and lecture to physiotherapists so that they know a little bit more about the use of some psychological principles when they're providing physiotherapy programs for their patients. It's good to understand um, what's happening in, in the world of physiotherapy and to understand that uh, there's a more integrated approach, if you like, um, across mind and body uh, and that principles uh, from psychological therapies such as cognitive behavioural therapy um, can Im improve um, uh, how physiotherapists um, do their work as well. And I think we see a similar thing happening in general practice um, where we're also, we, be we benefit from some understanding of, of psychological therapies um, and so we can help some of our patients in that way as well. Because I think originally, I, I think we talked about, you know, the, the GP practice changing over time for managing low back pain. I also have to say that the, the physiotherapy approach to managing low back pain has changed in that same point of time as well. And so uh, a GP adopting the old-fashioned approach is not going to do the right job for the patient. A physiotherapist adopting the old-fashioned approach won't do the right thing for the patient as well. So, so both groups have to change if we're going to get good outcomes for, for our patients with low back pain. Well, I think that that's a really appropriate note to end our conversation today. It's really been fascinating to hear more about what uh, best practice in low back pain looks like in the contemporary setting and also about how GPs and physiotherapists can better work with and understand each other. All right. Thank you for the opportunity, Jenny. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this NPS Medicine Wise podcast. The views of the host and the guest are their own and may not represent NPS Medicine Wise. NPS Medicine Wise is an independent, not-for-profit and evidence-based organisation that works to improve the way health technologies, medicines and medical tests are prescribed and used. To find out more about us and the work we do, visit www.nps.org.au.